0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day, at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, November the 4th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Feeling alive on a Friday. Hashtag Friday feels. Coming up on the show today, we assembled the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig. for the major labour strike. The municipal governments, the federal governments. Oh my gosh, are there implications regarding this strike in Ontario? And we discuss the back and forth on swearing a royal oath in the Quebec legislature. Michael McNeely will be here in the second hour of the show, and so will Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day, and it's data coming across the wire in the last few minutes related to the economy. Statistics Canada, I always struggle with that, Statistics Canada, says the economy added... 108,000 jobs in October, the unemployment rate did hold steady at 5.2%. Again, that data came in just a couple of minutes ago. So hopefully we can get you a little bit of analysis sometime on Monday's show as folks weigh in with their thoughts on that one as the day moves along. But while we're talking about the economy, Finance Minister Christian Freeland unveiled a fiscal update in Parliament yesterday. The update shows the government's running a $36.4 billion deficit this year. Freeland says Canada is in the same boat as the rest of the global economy. Canada cannot avoid the global slowdown any more than we could have avoided COVID once it had begun infecting the world. But we will be ready. Indeed, we are ready. The government is introducing new tax credits for clean energy technology. Targeted sectors include renewable electricity, battery storage, heat pumps and hydrogen. Freeland feels that Canada is well positioned to be a leader in the green economy. Together, these two great
1: shifts represent a generational opportunity to build a thriving and sustainable Canadian economy. We can lead the world in a way that far exceeds our footprint.
0: The credits will include a provision that companies who pay their workers a market wage will get more help than those that don't. Freeland noted the importance of considering workers in this policy. We want a strong economy. We want great, strong companies. Um, But we don't want them just because that's a good thing. We want them because we want Canadians to have great, well-paying, secure jobs. Projections in the fiscal update estimate that the federal government could be in a budget surplus by 2027. There was lots happening in Ottawa yesterday. My goodness, the security guards at the House of Commons must have been... Checking all kinds of bags. So let's get to some sound from the emergencies act inquiry. Convoy organizer Tamara Leach explained why she felt the need to protest.
2: I was growing increasingly alarmed with uh, the mandates and the harm that I was seeing um, the mandates inflict on Canadians
0: Leach will continue her testimony today. Now, one of the revelations shared this week by Convoy members and their lawyer was that sympathetic police officers were sharing information with them. So that was explored at a parliamentary committee meeting yesterday. Ottawa Interim Police Chief Stephen Bell says his force was unaware of those leaks.
3: The information that was um, presented yesterday at the Emergency Act uh, inquiry was net new information to us that we had not yet investigated.
0: OPP Commissioner Thomas Kerik says that information was also new to him. So there's no ongoing investigation at this time. There was no evidence ever identified that there were any leaks coming from in, within the Ontario Provincial Police. Let's move to an international story. The International Energy Agency is warning Europe must act swiftly to avoid a natural gas shortage. Inez de la Couture has more.
1: The International Energy Agency saying that since the EU has lost access to Russian natural gas and given expectations China's demand for natural gas will increase, Europe needs to act now to avoid a natural gas shortage next year. The European Union has managed to fill 95% of its storages ahead of this upcoming winter, but the IEA says the challenge next year will likely be greater and that recent mild weather may have led to a sense of complacency. Ines de Quatera, ABC News. At the Foreign Desk.
0: Okay, one more story for you, and it's going to lead me into a bit of a tirade about media criticism. But the story itself, well, it's about a big fish that's having a resurgence in the Amazon. Here's Ed Donahue. Pirarucus are huge, weighing as much as 440 pounds. It nearly vanished as vessels swept the lakes with large
3: nets. Ted Gere with USAID in Brazil says illegal fishing has been reduced and
0: there is a plan for catching pirarucus. 30% of the adult fish um, every year, they're able to grow the amount of fish that
3: are, that are here while at the same time taking out more, and being able to sell them. And there are buyers for pirarucus. This product not only is delicious, but it also is, is produced in a sustainable fashion, which helps the environment. It helps in uh, reducing carbon emissions. Pirarucu's fishing is done once a year around September, the period of lowest water. A fisherman's wife in Brazil says it is so tasty. Everybody that eats it falls in love with it and wants more. I'm Ed Donahue.
0: Okay, so what would you say the gist of that story was? Delicious fish that people are profiting off of. That was my takeaway. That's the gist of the story in my mind. Here's what the Associated Press wrote as their intro to that story. In the Amazon, a giant fish is helping save the rainforest. That's not the story that was told at all. There were a couple lines in there about sustainable fishing practices. And that indeed would be a very interesting story on how sustainable fishing practices could be a net gain for the environment and for the economy. But there wasn't really anything there about saving the rainforest. If anything, it was an advertisement for paracokus or parakukos. If anything, that was an ad for Big Peroku. Running the running the media. We know who runs the media. It's Big Peroku. And That's just going to lead us into our daily poll question, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let me get to Thursday's question before I get to today's question. On Thursday, we asked you, have you ever purchased something from an infomercial or an as-seen-on-TV product? 45% of you said yes, and 55% of you said no. We had a lot of Twitter responses in here. We had Kent Right in. I have ordered several as-seen-on-TV offers, including at least two directly from AMI TV advertisers, a NutriBlade knife set, and a large Granite Stone blue cookware set, which is basically like a Blue Diamond twin. As uh, I rent Kent's tweet this morning, I realized here I was talking about Blue Diamond on the air yesterday when I should have been talking about Granite Stone blue. I should have been totally disingenuous with you and told you that was the non-strict frying pan that I loved because, gosh, it was Granite Stone paying the bills. We also had a few folks who have chimed in on Facebook. Leanne writes in, never that I go to the As Seen on TV store at the mall where I can see the things in person and still don't buy them. And then Ruby writes in, who hasn't? Snuggie, Tub Shroom, Of Glove, Flex Seal, Nutra Chopper, True Dutch, Two Touch, de Shedding Glove. I assume that's for uh, pet grooming. It's always interesting when I ask one of these questions and I feel like I connect. I thought that was kind of a, you know, a bit of chatter yesterday, a bit of banter. Got a lot of response online. So thank you for chiming in, whether it was at, at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We appreciate it. Today's Daily Poll, coming back to media criticism and talking about that big Peroku story about the big fish in the Amazon. Do you feel like mass media news reports treat you like a child? Yes or no? I ask the question because I care so deeply about the importance of broadcast news, and I cannot tell you how often I read something or watch something, and I'm like, you didn't need to do that. How many times are we talking about the Emergencies Act inquiry? And there's, like, this mandatory paragraph. Sometimes, like, half the story is, talks about the protests that hunkered down in Ottawa for weeks in January and February Yeah, we know. At a certain point, you have to stop reporting the news like people have woken up from a coma three seconds ago. Just share the information. I also get wild about adjectives and describers, right? How many stories about the economy now have the attachment, soaring inflation? You can just say inflation. People understand. Or what really ticked me off, as you may recall, last December around the Omicron variant, the highly infectious Omicron variant. Get out of here. Just say the Omicron variant. If you want to do a story about the infection rates of Omicron, that's cool. Like, go ahead and do that. But every single news story doesn't need to read highly infectious contagious Omicron variant. Get out of here. Talk to people like they're people, not like they're children. You reap what you sow in the way that you report and the way you do media. Ah, that's my media criticism for the day. Let's bring in Mike Ross. Mike, we don't have a ton of time here, but give me your quick take.
3: Um, two words, clickbait. I mean, that's the era that we live in now, right? That is what media companies need to do or feel they need to do in order to survive. Even the most traditional media. I mean, think about even on television when they throw out the teaser before going to break, right? What in your bathroom could kill you? Next on News 5. That's, that's the world you live in. Why? Because our attention span is that of a child. So they're only treating us the way we basically are asked to be or are asking to be treated, um, maybe not you, maybe not I, but certainly the the sort of the common denominator and all that is is the person that's basically got 30 seconds of attention span to offer up.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I do want to shout out our friend Steve Paikin at TVO doing great work on the agenda every night. That's how more broadcast news and more news programs and current affair programs should be done. Eliza Rocco, what about you? Do you feel like news reports treat you like a child?
4: Oh yes, of course. I I do it clickbait is like Mike said it's such a huge thing, but I think we the general public does have more of an attention span that they're given credit for. They the media these days just treats people doesn't treat their viewers as smart, which I think is the biggest problem. They said they they try to make it as, as simple as possible with using the most click click-baity words as possible. And it turns into this not great combination, but they do treat us like children um, because of that combination of not, not, sa- not thinking that their viewers are as smart as they are.
0: Eliza, that's well said. Thank you very much for chiming in. I'm sorry that I couldn't give you and Mike a little more time to grapple with this. Maybe if we have a little room in the second hour of the show, we can revisit. But in the meantime, I want you to vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, And while you do that, listen to Mike Ross, who's going to not treat you like a child as he reads you the National Weather Update.
3: Thanks a lot, Dave. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Um, St. John's, Newfoundland is where we're starting. A few showers, then some clear skies. Your high today is 12 degrees. It'll be mainly sunny in Halifax with a high of 19. Montreal, wind, wind. And sun and all kinds of things. So the wind's actually going to be pretty gusty in Montreal today, but the sun will shine and the high is 20 degrees. So a beautiful day there. Ottawa's next, clearing skies and a high of 19 in the nation's capital. Toronto, a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 19 degrees. Thunder Bay, a few showers ending this morning, then clearing skies. The temperature will be steady near six. To Winnipeg. Clearing skies this morning, a high of plus 3. There is a wind chill this morning, though, minus 11. Let's go to Saskatoon. Periods of snow ending near the midday. Your temperature will fall to minus 7. The wind chill this morning, minus 9, minus 14 this afternoon. Calgary has clearing skies and a high of plus 2, but the wind chill will make it feel like minus 19 this morning. To Edmonton, a mix of sun and cloud, a high plus 4, and a wind chill, minus 10. Yellowknife, periods of snow, about 2 centimetres in total. Your wind chill, minus 17. And into BC, Vancouver, rain, about 20 to 30 millimetres and a high of 12 degrees. And Victoria has rain and a high of 14. And that was your National Weather Report from Environment
0: Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up after the break, we yell the words, news panel, assemble! Judah Gupta already down the hall. Michelle McQuig connected with us via video already. And we'll consider Canada's new economic-related immigration targets. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of the show. It's the first hour. You know what that means. It's news panel time. So let's welcome into the show our panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Joita.
1: Good morning, Dave.
0: And hello, Michelle. All right, we'll get to Michelle in a second. Hello, Michelle.
4: Hi, Dave and Joita. Sorry about all this. We're having... It's one of those
0: tech days. These things happen. It's just the technology world that we live in. Let's jump right into our first topic. Immigration Minister Sean Frazier has revealed new immigration targets for the federal government that he says are focused on economic growth. The government is setting a goal of admitting 500,000 immigrants per year by 2025. That represents a 7.5% increase from current immigration targets.
3: Make no mistake, this is a massive increase in economic migration to Canada. Uh, We have not seen uh, such a focus on economic migration as we've seen in this immigration levels plan.
0: Minister Frazier reflected further on how the current job market is impacted by labour shortages. There were a million jobs uh, available in the Canadian economy at a time when immigration already accounts. For nearly all of our uh, labour force growth. We cannot maximize our economic potential if we don't embrace immigration. A few more things to uh, lay out before we jump into the conversation. Again, to reiterate, the number, although, is an increase. It's 7.5%. It's not a gargantuan increase. We're already admitting uh, well over 400,000 people a year into Canada as immigrants, and this does come at a cost of the reduction of the number of refugees that Canada is planning to accept. So just a little more context before we jump into the conversation. Joita, what do you think of the number? Too many, too little, just right Goldilocks?
1: (laughs) It's hard to have a take on the precise number. I mean, why is it 500,000 and not say, 520,000 or 480,000. So I'm not going to quibble about the exact number. But uh, one of the things we know from that clip, and no one's really been shy about admitting this, is this has primarily been driven by economic needs and shortages in the labor market. It is a consistent push to try and bring immigration policy to serve uh, our labor market needs again not a surprising thing to do. That's often been why we ex- we've accepted immigrants to Canada, and we know as well that the number of immigrants accepted to Canada has steadily been on the rise, especially since Justin Trudeau took office. So that has been a climbing upward. So I'm not going to have analysis around the specific number. I don't really see the point, but I do think it is part and parcel of a larger trend where we are sort of pivoting to say that immigration is about meeting needs within the job market and um, the number of immigrants we accept in Canada has steadily been on the rise.
0: Michelle, Joita is right to sort of criticize me and say, Dave, don't focus on the individual numbers, focus on the broader policy. So what do you make of the policy? What do you make of the increase?
4: Yeah, I I would agree with Joita. I think the, the number is sort of, you know... Politicians like to present nice round numbers, and five hundred thousand is exactly that kind of figure, uh, and, and puts things in perspective. It's kind of easy; it's a number that's easy, easier to contextualize than if we went by strictly by percentages, for instance. So I think it's, that's kind of part of that messaging. But yeah, the, the, the trend towards focusing on economics uh, is an interesting one. Obviously, there are, are obvious needs to be felt um or to be dealt with here. What what strikes me is quite interesting is that the even the conservatives did not kick up a fuss about the, the rise in the immigration target for the government. I thought for sure there might be some part of the wrangling there. So clearly the the economic need as presented by the government is legitimate and one that everyone is getting on side with with backing. Where my concerns arise might be a little bit around if that was the only messaging around immigration and if people in need, and refugees, and all the programs meant to support those who are not necessarily coming here to fulfill an economic purpose that still have very good reasons to to try to make a home in Canada. If those programs fall by the wayside, if the economic narrative begins to trump this other one and cast it as a secondary one, or even casting those who are not coming here for economic purposes as villains, that's where I would start to have some concerns. Fortunately, it's early days yet, so we we are not there. But we do know that refugee acceptances are going to be curtailed a little bit because of this new immigration push. So uh, I will be watching that one with some interest.
0: Joëlle Michelle alludes to the reduction in accepting refugees, and certainly we know it has not necessarily been a very pretty picture for those coming from Afghanistan or mm-hmm. refugee seekers coming across the border, in, uh, the border in Quebec. But does the refugee side of this conversation impact the way you perceive the policy?
1: Yes, it's impossible to delink the two. I think with any degree of certainty, it can be argued that on the one hand, they're increasing immigration and accepting, quote-unquote, the right kind of immigrant. So they're also looking for skilled labor um, and people who uh, presumably will do well under our point system as, and offering them a pathway to permanent residency. So, they're often, uh, so that's happening on the one hand. On the other hand, they are now talking about reducing uh, the number of refugees accepted by nearly a third. Now, it is possible in fairness to the government, and Michelle can tell me if I have my facts wrong, it is possible that they increased slightly the number of refugees they accepted, uh, given the crisis in Ukraine. And so they might now no longer perceive a need to accept quite so many Ukrainian refugees, which might account for why they feel they could allow that number to shrink a little. but it is an incontrovertible fact that there is a tremendous need. you talked about Afghanistan, there are people languishing in refugee camps all over the world. So we know we've said it here, no one in the government is is denying it that this policy is clearly economically motivated. I would have felt at minimum they would have maintained the number of refugees given the need that we just that I just alluded to. But, uh, you know, the other piece around this is the number of refugees that we've been accepting has also steadily been on the rise. So in in the context of the overall immigration picture, although it is disappointing to see this announcement where they will cut the number of refugees accepted by a third, if you look at the trends, we have, on, in general, over the last 20-odd years, been accepting more refugees than we were when, you know, at the outset. So that number has also kept going up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the other piece around this is, um, and I sort of talked about this earlier, about accepting the right kind of immigrant. And we're not really talking about the non-status temporary workers uh, that come to Canada. Uh, there's been uh, many calls made. Now I think well over a decade, advocates have been calling for status and security and benefits for people like migrant farm workers who come and work here on a seasonal basis and often these are the workers who come to Canada year in, year out, contribute to our income, ta- pay taxes and come to Canada for decades at a time. but grow, have Grow no- our food. Grow our food, but have no pathway to permanent residency or citizenship, which is what this policy is now making possible for 500,000 people. So there's also a double standard there. When we say this policy is economically driven, I think we need to be thinking critically about exactly what that means and what kind of workers were actually looking to attract through this policy.
0: So let's talk about the economics, because there is a treasure trove of data that says increasing immigration is vitally important to maintaining a tax base while our population (coughs) ages. And certainly we can understand where there's a lot of places in this country we're going through, not necessarily population decline, but certainly some population flatlining as more and more folks are retiring Here's where it gets tricky, though, because let's work under the number of 500,000. Over the course of six years, that would represent a 10% increase in the overall population of Canada, 3 million people, 10%. I'm generalizing on some numbers here, but you get what I'm driving at, that we're talking about significant population increases as you play this out in the aggregate. At the same time, we are dealing with some pretty critical economic issues that I would say top of mind for Canadians are things like our healthcare system. That is in rough shape housing and affordable housing and a lack of housing is a huge consideration for a lot of Canadians. Food security also plays into this as we've seen a massive increase in the use of food banks, that data coming from Food Banks Canada and some researchers in Saskatchewan earlier this week. So with these contexts in mind, understanding their economic strains in place it's really hard to digest a policy that's going to be increasing overall population if there's not, in conjunction with it, significant investments in those areas that I mentioned, especially things like housing, healthcare, education, food security. And of course, we're going to talk about education in the next segment. That said, I'm going to keep meandering here for a second, if you'll bear with me. Obviously, some of the positions that this immigration is looking to fill are in sectors like healthcare, construction. Education, etc. Again, I, I think that there needs to be more to this plan. It has to be multifaceted. Michelle, is it even conceivable to have this conversation considering those strains that I've mentioned without having some plan in place to address a concrete plan to address those strains?
4: I mean, I would completely agree with you, and we find ourselves in a bit of a chicken and egg scenario, I think, a little bit, because even within this news conference where this announcement was made. There were some comments along the lines of, yes, well, uh, many of the people that we're hoping to attract with this new target are supposed to help fill vacancies in those fields. Some of these people can help build the new housing that we need, can help deliver the health services that we require. Uh, So you find yourself in a bit of a circular argument here of like, okay, well, we need these people to deliver these services, but how are we going to provide for them before they're able to uh, enter the job market and, and, and fill those roles. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. These kind of conversations are impossible to have without discussing these things. There is a bit of some kind of tacit acknowledgement that there are some parts of Canada, I think, that are perhaps better equipped to, to step up and fulfill those needs than others. Uh, the program has indicated that the, the goal is to help funnel some of the new arrivals to underserved areas, so not necessarily sending everyone to Toronto, Bay, Montreal, and Vancouver. Uh, which is probably something that advocates would be concerned about if if that were to be the approach taken because of extreme housing crunches in in some of those cities. Um, I'm sure some of the new arrivals might be a little put off by the cost of living in some of those cities as well. Uh, So those kinds of of acknowledgements are in the wind, but not necessarily front and centre, at least not to our knowledge. So I, I don't know if those kinds of conversations around... Ramping up housing and healthcare investments
0: and whatnot to support this plan are in place or if they're taking place at all. But I would certainly like to think so. Joita, I tried to make that argument with as much good faith as possible because I understand there are some elements of that that could be perceived as xenophobic or anti-immigrant sentiment. So I tried to make that argument in a way that was rational and didn't try to tap into those elements. But I'm curious, as we talk about the issue and talk about the economic importance of increasing Canada's population, can we do that without realistic, tangible plans in place to address the strains that already exist?
1: No. I mean, I think you're not saying anything uh, controversial. How many times have we heard about the neuroscientist who's a cab driver? Right, we have long acknowledged that our immigration system is broken, that our resettlement efforts fall short of where they need to be. Um, There are very specific challenges that uh, have been talked about ad nauseum. For example, recognizing foreign credentials is a really big one. You've got skilled uh, workers coming in, unable to procure licensing and the ability to practice in their skilled trade, so they're having to make choices between driving cabs and paying their bills versus going back to school and getting requalified. These are long standing problems that we've had. The one thing I'll say is um, it's the federal government that's setting immigration policy. So that 500,000 number comes from our federal government, but a lot of the things that you're talking about housing, healthcare, education
0: mm-hmm.
1: who's actually setting policy around that? I'm mm-hmm. not going to say the federal government is off the hook because they're not, but it's also the provinces that are largely responsible for things like housing and healthcare. And the question that I'd be curious to ask. Apart from you know, do we need to have a robust plan for housing, healthcare, and education? Uh, apart from that, is is it actually feasible? And is it are those conversations actually taking place uh, between the provincial and federal governments? Especially if we're talking about resettlement for refugees in underserved parts of this country, we know that Toronto and Vancouver uh, immigration central, but other parts of Canada not so much. So our province is actually having a dialogue with the federal government, or you know, is the federal government going in one direction, announcing five hundred thousand new immigrants, and is the pro- the province going in the other direction, saying, but well, we just don't have the capacity or the infrastructure to, mm-hmm. to support these people? That is a mystery, and I don't <laughs> have right. access to the halls of parliament. Yeah. we
0: need federal dollars to go with this plan.
1: Well, and we're already seeing a province mounting some resistance to this plan.
4: Uh, Quebec has already indicated that they will not accept more than the targets that they have already set. Now, they're not doing it on grounds of we don't have the housing capacity or we need more education investment or anything like that. Their narrative is all around protecting French, so that's Mm -hmm. a whole other topic, and can of worms that we can get into. But the point being, though, that there already is some provincial resistance to this
0: plan, even at these very, very early days. Well, let's actually take a pause and come back, because our next two stories are both going to involve the provinces. So after the break, we explore the labour strife in Ontario surrounding education workers Teachers unions, school boards, the provincial government and even the federal government is dipping their toes in these waters as well. Now news panel on (laughs) AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Dow News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joya Gupta. Let's address our next topic, which is playing out in real time in Ontario today. Labour strife that has been brewing for weeks in Ontario has come to a head this week and today. Education workers like educational assistants, custodians, and other support staff announced their intention to strike over the weekend. In response, the government introduced back-to-work legislation and the mandating of a contract that was passed yesterday. Premier Doug Ford says the legislation is all about the kids. We're making sure that the students stay in class. I'm going to repeat that. We're going to stay in class. We want parents to know that we're doing everything we can to make sure students don't miss one single day in class. Let's bring in Federal Justice Minister David Lemetti offering up his thoughts on the province using the notwithstanding clause to keep the legislation out of the courts.
5: The use of the notwithstanding clause is very serious. It... De facto means that people's rights are being uh, infringed and it's being justified using the notwithstanding clause. And using it preemptively is exceedingly problematic. It cuts off both political
6: debate and judicial scrutiny.
0: Canadian Union of Public Employees representative Laura Walton says the province is negotiating in bad faith. If
4: this was really about you know, preventing the strike and having those conversations, you don't come in and tell somebody that, you know, we're going to legislate you. You come in and you bring an offer and you work on this.
0: So I'd run the clock out for the rest of the hour if I talked about all the ways in which this is manifesting today in Ontario, but numerous school boards have either closed schools today or moved to remote models or some hybrid of the two. Again, we'd be here all day if I tried to explain to you all the different boards and all the different machinations This is such a massive story that it jumped out to all of us. Michelle and I talked about it on Monday in her segment. But Joeda, you sent the first email in this email chain. So how should we shape this conversation?
1: Um, There's so many things to pull apart. As you noted, there's clearly two sides, as is always the case in bargaining. And it feels like they started with very different demands. And the question really becomes, can they ever meet in the middle? Then, of course, we've got the specter of the notwithstanding clause and what the impact on all of this means for parents and students. I think it's very interesting if you just examine the rhetoric where you've got Doug Ford saying this is about the kids. And previous to that, we've heard in the media, for example, saying that parents are stuck in the middle. So it's not just about uh, the two uh, sides of the bargaining table. Clearly, this is a story that reverberates, uh, not just with uh, with the, the union and its members and the school board and the government of Ontario, but with ordinary people, students and, and their parents, and also one that I think has repercussions beyond Ontario because the, of the use of the notwithstanding clause mm-hmm. and what sort of a precedent it might set up for labor negotiations and dispute resolution moving forward.
0: Yeah, we're going to explore how the Constitution is getting kicked around like a soccer ball a little bit over the course of these next two segments. But Michelle, let's start with the strife itself. Did it appear to be inevitable when we're talking about a union asking for an 11% pay raise and the province countering at one5 and 2.5%?
7: Yeah, there's a couple of dimensions to this. Yes, I would say that's definitely a big factor. The other one, too, is the historically contentious relationship between this government in particular and all of the education unions. But in fairness to the institution, uh, it's worth noting that this is always a fraught topic, no matter which government is in power, which party is holding the reins. Um, Labour negotiations with the education unions is never quite a straightforward process. (laughs) That said, uh, the temperature is a little higher with these particular talks and with these particular players in the mix. And I think, yeah, you're talking about a huge, huge gap in wages. They were asking for, like you said, a nearly 12% increase. Uh, they argue these are the lowest paid education workers in the province, and as such, they need to be compensated because their wages have fallen behind. Even the government's, quote, compromise position is to offer at most a raise of 2.5% for those making 43000 or lower. Mm-hmm. So they were hugely far apart on these issues for sure. And uh, <clears throat> before we even talk about the notwithstanding clause and the implications for big labor nationally and that I'm with Joita and that's my big uh, area of focus for this particular story. But it's worth noting that QP is usually the first of four education unions to have to bargain with the government. So uh, <laughs> I don't think we're anywhere near done with this one because the teachers have not even begun the process.
0: That's right. All of, all four of the major unions in Ontario in regards to the education are going to be heading to the bargaining table within the next 12 months. So the, so this yeah. is going to be an ongoing issue. Um I have to say as some QP
7: is historically is not even the hardest
0: one. As, for them. as, so as like, someone yeah. who came here from Quebec and likes a lot of things about living in Ontario, the relationship between the government and the teachers, my goodness, <laughs> it is so so fracturous. It's unbelievable to me how fract. Yeah. Like there's no other province in the entire country that has this fracturous relationship between their education workers and their teachers. And the province, whether it was the liberal government or whether it was the PCs. Holy smokes, do they not get along. Joita, reflect for me on the gap here in the demands being made and what the government is offering.
1: Well, uh, sorry for stating the obvious. It is a massive gap, but it's actually not a surprising turn of events. We know that ordinary people are under tremendous inflationary pressure right now. Um, and so their union is doing what it always does, which is representing its members and responding to the tremendous increase in the cost of living. We also know from the union that their members haven't received a proper raise in a very long time. So mm-hmm. the average mm-hmm. wage for a educational assistant, for example, and the workers that they're representing falls around $18.75 in Toronto anyway the living wage is about $22. So they've always been making, they've always been underpaid for a very long time. And in part, this increase that they're asking for, the 11% is a way to make up for the fact that they've been underpaid and also to respond to the uh, the cost of living pressure that we're all under right now. We know that inflation is sitting at 6%, 7%. It's been hovering around that mark for months now. And there's no suggestion that that number that in the, for inflation is going to go down. Um, but also, apart from the fact that there's a genuine need that the union believes it's fulfilling, there's also a tactic here. I mean, that's what negotiations are. You yes. come in and you say, you have demands. You have demands. Yeah. I'm going to come in and, you know, you come in with 11% and the other side comes in with one 2.5. Then you, you know, talk to each other and maybe you meet in the middle and you give them 7% or something. I don't know. But that's clearly not happening in this instance because one of the things that became evident is that, um, is that people just didn't talk. I mean, that's why the mediator put an end to the sessions yesterday afternoon because the two sides were so far apart. But just bear in mind that, um, you know, when we think about these workers who are doing critical work in our classrooms, between um, two, uh, 2012 and 2021, education workers' salaries went up by 8.7%, but inflation has actually gone up by seventeen point eight percent in that mm-hmm. same window. So again, just keep in mind that what they're doing is scuttling around, not and and you know preemptively shutting down a conversation about uh, wages primarily uh, through the use of the notwithstanding clause, and you know trying to get that runaround going. But uh, there is a genuine need that the union is trying to to. Um, Fulfill. And as for the government, well, they've always, as you both noted, played hardball with the public sector, be it education or other workers. So that's not entirely surprising either.
0: Um, also, worth noting, as you mentioned, those inflation numbers, the fact is that doesn't even factor in the cost of housing. That doesn't get factored into the inflationary numbers, and we know what's happened to housing, especially in places like Ottawa, the GTA, Kingston, basically the St. Lawrence and Lake Ontario corridor uh, since 2012. It's been massive, right? So it's very, very difficult. Also worth noting, people like custodians, that's a pretty vitally important job in schools, especially over the course of the last couple of years when kids were in class with the extended and and heightened uh, expectations of cleanliness, and I think because we are a network that broadcasts to people with disabilities or with that as a target in mind, um, EAs, the educational assistants, are a critical piece mm-hmm. of spec ed, like a massive, massive piece of spec ed in terms of any kind of individualized education plans for students. EAs are disproportionately represented in spec ed classrooms. They're a critical piece of the special education, of the special education wheels. So that is, we definitely cannot leave this conversation without noting that, But now we get in to the notwithstanding clause looming over all of this. I want to note that even though I played that clip from Federal Minister Lemetti. A few times, as the notwithstanding clause has been brandished around in the last couple of years, the federal government has says, "Oh, we'll look into that," and then never does. I'm specifically looking at Quebec with their language and culture laws. The federal government said, "Oh, yeah, 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 we're going to take a look," and then didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm going to say the federal government is going to keep talking about this. I don't actually expect them to step in. Michelle, where do you what do you think?
7: Yeah, uh, another example of of time when when the use of the notwithstanding clause raised concerns and no action was taken. It was actually in Ontario a few years back. Remember when Doug Ford uh, cut the size of Toronto City Council in half in the middle of an election Mm -hmm, campaign? mm -hmm. Yeah, that was another instance where the clause was invoked and uh, everything just went along as, as as the government hoped it would. Um, but this one is, is really interesting, and I suspect if there is going to be one that's going to garner some more attention, this might be it, because this one absolutely does have very clear national implications in ways that perhaps the other issues did not. Those were pretty well re- confined within the realms of the provinces where they were taking place. The implications for it, um, while you could make good arguments for, for their application more broadly, this one I think is a little more direct and tangible and easier for people to get their heads heads around because this is going to affect big labor everywhere, or at least potentially could. And this is everyone's concern, is that by, by invoking the notwithstanding clause from the outset, you're essentially shutting down all potential routes to negotiation and saying, yes, yeah, you know what, we're, we're, we're just not going to do that. It's not going to happen. We're taking away what is essentially a constitutionally protected right. You do have a right to strike. This is something that is enshrined in the Constitution, as, is, of course, is the notwithstanding clause. So you have forces that are at odds and opposing ones at that. So it, it's very it's very difficult around what this could spell for big labor but it really does have a lot of people concerned around the country and for that reason if anyone if if any particular issue might uh, fire up the conversation around the notwithstanding clause this could be it but that said and we're going to get there i'm I suspect
0: if I were constitutional
7: I, modifications are a really really thorny area and not one that anyone is keen to
0: touch. If I were speaking to a classroom of second year law students and believe me they keep me away from those kinds of people <laughs> because they have potential and they know I could <laughs> stifle it. I would tell them You should be focusing on constitutional law over the last couple of years of your law degree because there may be some opportunities for you over the course of the next few years. Uh, Joita, before I wander too far down a different rabbit hole, what do you make of this looming over the notwithstanding clause the federal government and maybe some of the larger implications?
1: Yeah, I think Michelle summed up a lot of it really well. We know that the... uh, the charter guarantees a freedom of association. And that's really what, uh, although it doesn't expressly say in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that you have the right to go on strike, um, the freedom of association language is what unions rely on to support the right to strike. And this is a way to uh, get around that. It's also a way to scuttle uh, union negotiations and labor tactics. And as Michelle pointed out, it's a way to um it has a broader national implications, so it definitely goes beyond Ontario. I, I think one of the things that it needs to be mentioned here is also that um Doug Ford has been very um loosey-goosey for lack of a better word, uh, with the use of the notwithstanding clause. It was meant to be used very rarely, in mm-hmm. exceptions, but we've seen it used in Toronto to uh reduce the number of city councillors to challenge third-party advertising during the elections. And now this is the the latest application of the notwithstanding clause. And so there are broader implications for our our democratic rights and freedoms because the more you use the notwithstanding clause, the more one tends to make the argument that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is meaningless. Uh, And so you asked also about the federal government. Now... We know uh, that there is a precedent of using the notwithstanding clause in labor disputes. We saw this in Saskatchewan in 1986 when they used it uh, during a labor dispute to order workers back to work. Um, it's it's not that the situation that we see in Ontario has no precedent whatsoever, but I would be curious uh, whether there's ever been a precedent or an antecedent to exactly what it is that we're seeing right now. I'm not a constitutional expert and I, I don't have enough History uh, to get into this, but I think the implications are deeply worrying. You asked about uh, the federal government, and the federal government has come out and criticised the government for the use of the notwithstanding clause. Um, But uh, you know, you know, Trudeau phoned Doug Ford and said it was inappropriate and not appropriate. Uh, But you've had columnists and others like Andrew Coyne, who writes the Globe and Mail, talk about the fact that the Constitution does give the federal government, something called the right to disallowance, which means they can veto the notwithstanding clause. The problem is they're not going to do that because it will cause, if you're are, Uh, You know, if they do that in Quebec, if they turn around and veto Quebec's use of the notwithstanding clause, it's going to fan separatist feelings. So if they leave Quebec alone and they go after Ontario and say, we're going to veto your use of the notwithstanding clause, that's going to mean that hackles are going to go up. What's the federal government going to do? They're going to complain, but I suspect it is highly unlikely, despite tremendous pressure from some sectors on the federal government, that will actually open up the constitutional debate and meaningfully visit, uh, revisit, I suppose, the notwithstanding clause in any significant way, or exercise the powers that they do have because they don't want to get into a contentious relationship with any of the provinces. I,
0: I do want to offer one more piece of context just before we go to break. Last Friday, I know, Friday news dumps, these things get lost in the mix. The Supreme Court of Canada decided not to hear an appeal against a Manitoba law that mandated a wage freeze on public sector workers. Now the Supreme Court does not have to justify why they don't hear an appeal but the choice not to hear the appeal does indicate that even the courts might be sympathetic to a mandated contract or a back to work clause thus kind of further creating that, that landmark of being like why do you have to use this when the courts may even be in your favor but guys we are going to run flat out of time if we don't move on from here I just do want to reflect at least one thought here. Here in regards to parents. Yes, they are indeed caught in the middle, but that's what happens oh, in yeah. the world mm-hmm. of labor strife, and thank mm-hmm. God I do not have kids. Coming up next, we discuss the back and forth on swearing royal oaths in the Quebec legislature. More uh, fun constitutional stuff going on. This is the Now News panel on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joya Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have one more topic to discuss. There has been some back and forth at the Quebec legislature this week about swearing royal oaths. Eleven members of the Quebec Solidaire Party have chosen to swore an oath to the king so that they can officially enter the chamber. The party does intend to introduce a bill to make the oath optional moving forward. The Speaker of the Legislature says the oath to the king is mandatory and authorized to the Sergeant-at-Arms to expel members who didn't comply earlier in the week. Michelle, I should warn you, we do not have a ton of time here, but what's the aspect of this story that you want to grapple with?
7: Not a problem. Um, honestly, what jumped out at me was kind of related to our past topic in that it seems to be yet another example. And there, are, there have been a bunch recently in which we see a lot of governments putting a certain amount of effort into getting around the Constitution, it seems to me. This would be another one. Now we have Quebec Solidaires saying that, yeah, they're opposed to taking the oath, but they will do with just this time so that they can go in and Offer their support for a bill that will make the oath mandatory, even though it is constitutionally required. Uh, this seems like a fairly complex approach to to an issue that hasn't really been that controversial before. We, we've we've always heard kind of vague rumblings of discontent about the oath in certain circles, very specific ones. But now that we have a new monarch, we see these things coming into the fore a little more prominently. Um, I I just thought it would be something that we could could tackle because of its implications for for not just the constitution but because it's uh kind of an unusual development in light of the queen's recent death
0: i i think we can all agree that some sort of oath is a reasonable thing to do if you are a politician hoping to uphold the public interest and asking people to swear an oath is reasonable it is a little preposterous that it still has to be to the royal family even considering um our constitutional framework and makeup in Canada. I feel like there has to be some compromise you can make here that you don't need to have this be about the queen or the king or some royal family and their colonial legacy. But you know, what do you make of the back and forth and again that constitutional soccer ball that mm-hmm. seems to be getting kicked around a lot these days.
1: Well, just in Quebec anyways, the monarchy has always been quite unpopular. So you're not going to lose points with anyone yeah, by, right. saying, yeah, exactly. by saying by yeah. saying that you know we shouldn't have to swear an no. oath. So it, in a way this was a moment to capitalize on the opportunity and play to your base, but you're right. There is a constitutional soccer ball that's been kicked around now. Um, not to take away in any way, in any way, shape, or form from the harm that has been perpetuated in the name of the monarchy and under the uh, and the auspices of the crown, but in actual fact, um, this issue uh, of trying to get around swearing an oath is something of a sideshow, in my opinion. The repercussions of, say, the notwithstanding clause in Ontario that we talked about. Uh, or you know the Saskatchewan uh, Act that is also being talked about mm-hmm, right now. Mm-hmm. Or you know if you talk about Danielle Smith and a few weeks ago we were chatting about her uh, Al- Alberta sovereignty. sovereignty Alberta Act. Sovereignty, I yeah. feel like all of those things have greater real-world implications. The, the The Supreme Court is likely going to be up to its elbows dealing with constitutional matters in the next little while, which isn't surprising. That's kind of what they do. But for me, swearing an oath. It's been a long-standing simmering campaign, but it's not going to have the same real-world implications as uh, some of the other things that I've talked about today.
0: Yeah, but it definitely gets people's hackles up, eh, Michelle. Oh, yeah. Even if even if it's a bit of a sideshow, it gets the hackles up for sure.
1: It definitely does, and it's it's
7: I don't know. It, in a way, this it's not fair to to use to have Quebec be the, the sort of testing ground for this kind of issue because we're, we're this might be playing out very differently in other areas, and Quebec does have some some different circumstances and some stronger and more vocal anti-monarchy sentiment than others. But yeah, the whole thing is, it's just a really, um, I don't know. Your advice to the law students, Dave, about constitutional law seems like it would be pretty apt as far as I'm concerned, because there seem to be a number of different inroads being made that all in my estimation lead toward uh, a, a deeper examination of the constitution and the role it plays. Because, like I said, there there do, there do seem to be some more concerted and, and dedicated efforts to circumventing
0: it of late. More some, than
7: I've seen before.
0: Some of my lawyer friends have already chimed in during the commercial break and said, "Ah, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's still more money in mergers and acquisitions on Bay Street, Dave. <laughs> so don't uh, you know? Don't be, don't be don't paint with too broad a brush, uh, guys. I kind of let my position be known. I'm I'm cool with oaths. I think we could probably find a way, some elegant way, to replace the royal family out of this. But Michelle, where do you stand on the oath? On just the general usage of oaths?
7: I have no issue with oaths per se. I do think in a political context, we are supposed to be bound by the constitution. And as such, uh, the monarchy is part of that for better or for worse. That just is the fact of the matter. So to me, having the monarchy be part of the mix for politi- for politicians who do need to abide by the constitution and the charter, I don't particularly see an issue with that. I do think though that there are other institutions where there ought to be room for a, a-, a little more latitude on this. Mm. Uh, the The... The presence of the monarchy is is posing an issue for certain people, certainly in the courts. Uh, it can come up a lot. A, a, a number of Indigenous lawyers have started to mount some pushback around that, and they have very good cause to do so. So uh, I, I don't necessarily think it needs to be a hard and fast rule, but in a political context, I don't really see an issue with it. It's so based on our framework that isn't going to change, imminently.
0: Joita, even though I find it preposterous, I'm kind of with Michelle. It, it just sort of exists. It is what it is. Where do you stand on the idea of these royal oaths in the halls of government?
1: As I said, it's not a life or death situation. It's something of a sideshow. But at the same time, it is a powerful symbol of the enduring influence of the monarchy. And we know that there are decolonial movements that have been sweeping the globe. We've had... Um, countries in the Caribbean sever ties with the monarchy so there's a broader context to this there's a, been calls uh, for you know Prince uh, for for uh, Charles III and uh, you know the royal family to acknowledge the harm done to indigenous people and to respect their special relationship uh, with indigenous people and they haven't really come out and made any sort of an apology or acknowledgement uh, that as far as I know so the oath is a, a powerful symbol and one of the things to be, bear in mind is you know for for example, Australia did get rid of its oath, but opening up the constitution to, to remove the monarchy, while that might be something that the majority of Canadians may well get behind, that's going to open up a whole other oh, can yeah. of worms because oh, you're not yeah. just oh, able yeah. to change the one thing; people will want to change a dozen other things. So I don't realistically <laughs> see it. we have to have a whole panel on that. Oh, yeah, no, sure. <laughs> I don't even
0: think we're qualified. I think we're qualified to a certain extent, but I'm going to get those law students in here to give us the real perspective. I'm Michelle. This is where hey, every call. this is where every week I say goodbye to you and. Have on to Joita for one more second. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you on Monday.
7: Sounds good. Take care, everybody.
0: And Joita, I talked to you for one more moment because a new edition of The Pulse dropped yesterday. Another phenomenal interview. What's cracking with The Pulse on AMI-audio?
1: I shouldn't say that I have clear favourites as the host, but I would, say I, have, I would say yesterday's episode is a clear favourite. We're talking to Helen Rees from Siblings Canada about a new course called Savvy Siblings, which offers financial management uh, and literacy training to the siblings of people with disabilities and before i heard about helen's amazing course uh, from megan gilmore thank you megan i had never i had never even considered that adult siblings need to get involved with financial management. Chalk it up to being oblivious. But I think, you know, if you're waking up and going, wait a second, I hadn't even thought about this. You probably want to check out the, the episode and also take the course. It is free.
0: We're always encouraging folks to tune in live Thursdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. But of course, they can find it on demand on their favorite podcasting platform or on the AMI YouTube page. Joita, thank you for this. Have a great weekend.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break. I have the regional news update and Brock Richardson will be here with the sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, November the 4th, 2022. Coming up on this Friday edition of the show in the second hour, Michael McNeely has a review of the documentary Gratitude Revealed. And Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access will tell you about this year's winners for the First Nations Community Reads and Evergreen Award. Let's begin the hour with the regional news updates beginning in british columbia where the district of squamish has closed a network of trails near its downtown after two bear attacks were reported yesterday the district says there were separate attacks involving a mother bear with a cub the bc conservation officer service is investigating the district says the estuary trails will be closed until further notice to ensure public safety and give some space to the animals Over to the prairies, an Indigenous woman is suing an Edmonton hospital for alleged discrimination as she gave birth in 2020. Karen Rebo has the story.
4: A statement of claim says Pearl Gambler experienced intense contractions and repeatedly called to nursing staff at Misericordia Hospital for help, but no one tended to her except for a male nurse who stood in the corner and watched her. Gambler gave birth in the emergency department. The lawsuit claims the infant died soon after in a basket at a nursing station without a record of the time of death. It further alleges that a hospital worker referred to the dead infant as a specimen and asked the mother what she wanted to do with it. Covenant Health, a Catholic health care provider that runs the hospital, says it is reviewing the allegations and takes claims of racism and discrimination seriously. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: Over to Ontario, where Ontario Health is telling all adult hospitals to treat children 14 and over who are dealing with COVID-19 symptoms. The agency says the directive is intended to ease pressure on Overstretched Pediatric Hospitals, dealing with a surge of children needing treatment for various respiratory illnesses. CEO Dr. Chris Simpson says the shortage of children's Advil and Tylenol is compounding the problem. Simpson predicts the strain on children's hospitals will last into January. And while we're talking about hospital strain, let's head over to Atlantic Canada for some information related to COVID-19. Nova Scotia Health says there are currently 34 people in hospital with a COVID-19 infection and three of them are in the ICU as of yesterday. There were 115 health staff off work because they have COVID or they were in close contact with someone who has the virus. And Health PEI is scaling back the hours of operation for COVID-19 testing clinics. The province says fewer people are signing up for appointments at the COVID-19 testing centres. Health PEI is recommending that families make use of at-home testing kits in schools and an access PEI locations. And I figured while we're talking about COVID, I might as well give you a national snapshot. There are currently 5,578 people in hospital with COVID-19. That is, up, that is up slightly week over week by a couple hundred people. 305 people have died in Canada in the last week from COVID-19. And since the start of the pandemic, 46,389 people have died in Canada from covid That's your look at the regional news and a COVID-19 update. Now we can bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Okay, Brock, we're throwing the whole order out because we had some breaking news come across the wire in the last 20 minutes or so. We speculated about this yesterday on the show. It has been confirmed the Ottawa Senators are up for sale.
5: Yes, they are. And uh, I don't think this comes as any surprise uh to me the one thing that was noted in the uh press release that i saw is that one of the um mandates if you will is that the team must remain in ottawa and that's good news if you are an ottawa senators fan yeah. but yes the process begins
0: Nice time to win the Powerball in the U.S. Give me that $1.2 billion mm-hmm. and I'd be a majority owner in the Sens and then you know, I'd that, <laughs> live that good life. Uh, Brock, let's head over to some news that broke last night from the basketball mm-hmm. world. Again, something we touched on earlier in the week, Kyrie Irving uh, dealing with the fallouts of posting a link to an anti-Semitic documentary. And he has now been suspended by the team. Yes, he
5: has. He's been suspended. Internally, uh, for a minimum of five games without pay, after multiple efforts, according to the Brooklyn Nets, to discuss the damage he has made within the organization until such time that they feel that he um, has made best efforts, he will remain suspended, but the suspension will be at least five games. And my quick thought on this, Dave, is that it's good to see that a team uh, puts their morals values ahead of the talent of any athlete and there's no question that Kyrie Irving is a talent but he needs to be accountable for his actions and to me that's exactly what the Brooklyn Nets are doing even amidst the mess that is their organization.
0: I tried to get some sound from a very contentious press conference yesterday where the Nets brought him out for a team availability with the press where they were anticipating that he was going to offer an apology. He did not offer apologies. He kept fighting with the press and eventually the team cut the press conference short and it seemed like it was an inevitability that uh, he was going to get suspended after that very poor press conference yesterday. Brock, I know you had some fun baseball trivia. We've got to leave that aside. We'll get to that next week. You've got some really fun facts, but we have too much hard news in the world of sports to be bogged down in trivia. So let's go to the world series where the Houston Astros toppled the Philadelphia Phillies three to two and have taken their first series lead in the World Series. The Astros head home, needing just one win to clinch their second World Series in five years. Astros third baseman Alec Bregman says the team is focused on the task at hand.
5: Every year is different, every team's different, but this team is is focused on the next pitch. Every, every, every single guy in this room, um, it would mean the world to win one more game to all of us, so we're all focused on that, and we're going to leave it all out on the field every single night.
0: Brock, we finally got a good game in the world series last night.
5: Yes, we called for it and we got it. Uh, Just a completely different game to watch. Both teams were in a battle. I expect no less for uh, Saturday and Sunday's games. Remember there is a day off today. Um, And this, this series is going to, going to go right down to the wire. I believe that philadelphia is going to give their best punch as they need to if they want to uh if they want to continue the series if you're houston you are excited that the last two games are at your home in that if you do win the world series you will win it at home which i think is uh, what everyone wants oh yeah that's got to be nice and and this is the thing dave i like about the world series uh being designed the way it is two three two i think If you are the home team, you deserve those last two games at your um, home ballpark. I love this format, and uh, yeah, I don't like the 1-1-1 once we hit after game four in the NHL and NBA. So, yeah.
0: I'm, uh, I'm pulling for a game seven on Sunday because the Sunday night football game is not that compelling between the Chiefs and the Titans. So, yeah. Saddle me up for a Game 7 <laughs> Sunday night baseball game for all the marbles. Sign me up. Brock, we've got a lot of sports in terms of our weekend look ahead here. You sent me about 12 options yesterday to talk about. I countered by sending you an email with eight college football games that are on my radar. So, Brock, I'm going to kind of really streamline this. Give me one basketball game to watch this weekend.
5: The uh Toronto Raptors... Uh, versus the Dallas Mavericks tonight will be a good game. Toronto has been playing uh, complete, wonderful basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, they become must-watch television. And this is all without Fred Van Vliet. They're just so exciting to watch active on defense. There's been lots of things on Twitter about, you know, teams needing to take note of the Toronto Raptors um, and what they do on defense. So, Tune in for that. It will be good.
0: Absolutely. And my boy, Luka Doncic, suiting up for the Dallas Mavericks, maybe the best point guard in the league. Holler, if you hear me, that's a great game between the Raptors and the Mavericks. Brock, we could be watching hockey till pucks come out of our ears all weekend. Give me one hockey game to watch.
5: Edmonton Oilers versus Dallas Stars. Edmonton has just become a good team to watch as well. They are Canada's really... At this point, uh, most complete sort of team. They seem to have the the wheels on the train track right now, and they're just wonderful to watch. And who doesn't want to watch Connor McDavid on a Saturday night when nobody has to get up ridiculously (laughs) early on Sunday to to go to work or whatever? And for those of you that work on Sunday, I'm sorry. Yeah, too bad. Uh, Too bad you stay up
0: late anyway. You get an extra hour of sleep. It's a a fall backwards weekend. You know, it's a daylight saving weekend. So you get that extra hour to watch the West Coast game. Uh, Brock, before we leave Saturday, I'm always telling you, I've got your back in the world of college football. 3.30. CBS, we're staying in the Southeast Conference tomorrow. Tennessee and Georgia, a great rivalry between two schools who play each other every single year. Georgia has been eating Tennessee's lunch for about a decade now, but Tennessee is striving to be the number one team in the country. Their quarterback, Hendon Hooker, looking to win a Heisman Trophy. Their star wide receiver, Jalen Hyatt, had five touchdowns against Alabama a couple weeks ago, racking up hundreds of yards every game. But that Georgia defense is just producing tons of NFLers week in, year in and year out. And they are elite again this year, Brock, one of the top five scoring defenses in the entire country. This is offense versus defense tomorrow in Athens, Georgia. Between the hedges, dogs and volunteers. Let's go.
5: Love it. I You could sell me on anything. So I will be watching this because you've been bang on for, you know, Interesting TV to watch the last couple of weeks. If, so love it.
0: If I was really trying hard Brock and I was trying to go for something a little bit of a hipster pick, I would tell you Kansas State and Texas on Fox in the evening. But there's no way I can convince you to watch that. Let's mm. jump over to Sunday CFL playoffs Brock. We don't talk a ton about the CFL on this show. I I just there's not a lot of room in my football geography for it, but I am excited about the BC Lions game. I'm excited about their returning quarterback, Nathan Rourke, who got a couple snaps in last. Week I'm pumped for the Lions. Let's go take a bite out of the playoffs. But what are you looking for as part of the CFL playoffs on Sunday afternoon on TSN?
5: That is the exact game that I have highlighted on my list. Uh, The Montreal Hamilton is a crapshoot game. If you're going to watch something noteworthy, it's the BC Lions. How does Nathan uh, Rourke do in his what we perceive to be a full game? As long as everything goes well. I favorited the BC Lions in this. If uh, Rourke can uh, even put together a 75% game, I think that that would be enough. And then who knows what will happen uh, when we get to the East. But this is the one I have highlighted for Sunday.
0: Yeah, Hamilton, Montreal, not super compelling. Other than the fact that people in Montreal do love themselves a playoff game, I imagine they're going to sell some tickets for this one. Actually, I don't know if they're playing at the Olympic Stadium or if they're playing at Molson Stadium. But either way, it's going to get raucous. People in Montreal love themselves a playoff game, and I assure you, there's going to be a Molson X or two that's uh, drained along the way. <laughs> Brock, yes, I hope there's a Molson X or two for you along the course of the weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday.
5: We will indeed.
0: That is Brock. Have a good Rich- weekend. Thank you, sir. That is Brock Richardson. He is at the AMI Sports Desk. Mike Ross is at the AMI Weather Desk. Oh, a tradition unlike any others. Mike having microphone issues in the second hour of the show. So we're going to observe Mike. There we go. I heard him breathe. I heard Mike breathe. Is that, are, we, are we okay? We're good.
3: Nothing we're, like a Friday, we're Dave. golden. Nothing like a Friday. All right. Golden. Let me reopen the weather here. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Corner Brook, Newfoundland. Mainly cloudy today with a high of 12 degrees. Charlottetown, PEI, mainly sunny and a high of 17. St. John, mainly sunny, a high of 14, though it'll be 19 as you move inland. Let's go to Quebec City, where it'll be mainly sunny with a high of 17. Toronto, a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 19. Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario showers about 10 to 15 millimeters, but the high is going to reach 18 degrees. Brandon, Manitoba, mainly sunny, a high of six. There is a wind chill this morning, though, of minus 16. Regina, sunshine, plus five is the high. The wind chill there this morning, minus 17. Lethbridge, Alberta, clearing skies this morning. The high will be plus five. Your wind chill this morning, minus nine. Red Deer, Alberta, has a mix of sun and cloud today and a high of plus two. The wind chill there as they head out the door, minus. 20 white horse we'll see periods of snow today two centimeters in total the temperature falls to minus 10 and the wind chill is minus 18. into Kelowna, snow there anywhere between two and four centimeters but it may melt pretty quickly because there's a rain coming in right after that and the high will be six degrees and finally vancouver Rain, about 20 to 30 millimeters in total, and your high is 12 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up next, we have Michael McNeely from one mic to another. He has thoughts on a documentary that he just watched called Gratitude Revealed. You don't want to miss this film review. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of the show, which means Michael McNeely stops by with a film review. Michael recently screened a new documentary called Gratitude Revealed and joins us from his new apartment in Toronto with his thoughts on the film. Hey, good morning, Michael. Hope the move went well. Well, the move
6: is still going. That's the main takeaway.
0: Michael, I've lived in Toronto for two and a half years now and I will tell you the move is still ongoing. It never ends. That's true. However, I'm grateful to have a place that has a roof over my head so I can only speculate this movie is about gratitude. But how exactly does the documentary approach the topic?
6: Well, it approaches the topic from a variety of different perspectives. One um, of the main um, purposes of the DVD. So you the, can I've that
0: again. That's the DVD. There's no DVD. I mean, there still are DVDs. I still, I still listen. I still watch my Boogie Nights DVD pretty regularly. Although that might be a Blu-ray. But Michael, keep keep going. No no sweat. A little bit of a DVD. Who doesn't matter? It's a little slip-up. It's a slip of the tongue. It's a colloquialism. Tell me about what this movie is exploring.
6: The film. Defines gratitude
0: in from a variety of different perspectives. Um, many different experts discuss what gratitude
6: means to them, and I think I think we can call these people experts because they practice gratitude into day to day lives. And I think we can all be experts in practicing gratitude as long as we find something to appreciate.
0: Do you think the concept of gratitude is explored enough in film and TV?
6: I think sometimes when you watch a lot of documentaries like I do, you find that there's a lot of negative topics out there. Those negative topics are worth exploring and worth understanding for sure, but we we can't afford to forget about the positive aspects of life. And I think this documentary does a good job of showing that there's a lot of things to be grateful for to be thankful
0: for. Who are some of the speakers in the film that are going to be offering their perspective on gratitude?
6: So there are many speakers. I was thinking last night when I watched the film that most of the speakers don't really last for more than five minutes, which I think is kind of cool because you don't really end up spending too much time with one person. Although I would say that some of these people do deserve their own documentaries and some of them actually have their own documentaries as well. Like Deepak Chopra, he speaks about gratitude. We also have Norman Leo, who is a pioneer in sitcoms. daydam. Um, one day at a time. We also have, who I just discovered when I watched the film, the Fast Quest Brothers. they There's salsa dance and trio and I can't stop watching YouTube videos of them. And I'm challenging all my friends to dance like them for Christmas for me. But I just say, I said, pick the lesser brother if you don't think you're good enough. But the lesser brother, I don't think there's a lesser brother. I'm just making up. They're really awesome. And there's also the cliff, cliff dancers, which is what it sounds like. The dance on harnesses, who went down a cliff, and if you have a fear of heights, don't do that.
0: <laughs> Beyond the dancing and adventure seeking, was there anything in the film that really blew you away?
6: I think it's just the positivity. It's just the willingness to be open about your feelings. It's the it's that gratitude can come from a lot of different places. So, for example. Gratitude can come from being curious. So if you're curious, there are things in the world that you don't know, and maybe you're, you're, you're grateful for those things that you don't know, because it means that you can still look up those things, or you can still do research on those things. I, I was blown away by, as I mentioned, the Fast Quest Brothers and the Cliff Dancing, as well as the, the Follies, who are a bunch of senior citizens that dance just like they're 20 years so easy, five years, dancing like 20 years. I want to see a documentary
0: like that. And I hope that nobody gets hurt. <laughs> I think I've already got a working title for that one Grandmas That Grind or Grinding Grandmas. We'll uh, work on that one. Michael, as you uh, engage in maybe some self reflection upon watching this documentary, what in your life are you grateful for? Oh,
6: boy. That's a good question. I'm grateful for being able to move to Toronto. I'm grateful for my parents who helped me with this move and my friends who have helped me as well. You know, it's it's nice to be back in Toronto. I'm also grateful that I get to be a film critic every day. You know, I get to find out these movies and to explore what they mean and, you know, show them to other people. I don't think there's any better than in the world than that.
0: Dave, what are you what are you grateful for? Michael, very much along the same lines as your last answer. I'm grateful that I get to work in an industry that I'm very passionate about. I'm borderline pretty much doing my dream job. Something that I thought about when I was a young kid at 11, 12, 13 years old, laying in bed at night, listening to the radio, listening to talk shows always kind of thinking, wow, that would be a really neat opportunity. That would be that would be something that I'd really enjoy doing. And flash forwarding later in life to having the opportunity and having the resources to be able to go back to school in my mid-20s to go chase that dream is something that I'm grateful for every day. I was in a pretty dark place in 2008, in 2009. There was something about my life that I loved, but I was probably like, two to four months away from really putting myself into a point of crisis, whether it be with substance abuse, whether it be with uh, some poverty that I was going through, just really being in a bad situation that a lot of my relationships were being strained and getting into broadcasting school and moving to Ottawa changed my life and saved my life and has made me the man that I am today. So I'm grateful for the work that I do because it's framed who I am today. And maybe we shouldn't be defining ourselves by the work that we do, but every single day, I'm grateful that I have these opportunities.
6: Mike drop, you did it, you beat it. You, you uh, basically established what this movie is about and why it's so important. I, I think the, the film doesn't shy away from the troubles that people have. But it does, it does say that those people who have the most trouble are often the most which is which is something that's very surprising because we find that people who have a lot are often stinky and people who don't have a lot give their time and their resources.
0: Michael, I can already tell that you liked this movie, but if we had to make you put your critical hat on, if you could improve something about it, what would you do?
6: Well, one of, the, one of the speakers is Eric Weinmeier, who I hope to meet someday, because he was the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. Um, but despite a blind person being in the film, it's not the best um, representation of blind people beside Eric. Because at the beginning of the film, we are told that um, we should open our eyes and look in the clouds and be thankful that the clouds are there and that the clouds are different every day. But I know that some of our audience can't see the clouds. So there are statements like that that can be sort of from, you know, sort of isolated for those people in our audience to be marginalized and to be, to be you know, pointed out at because they're not able to do the gratitude that the other people are doing. But I think that just means that we need to do more documentaries about gratitude and people with disabilities and what are they grateful for. I would also point out that this film does not have a lot of women or LGBT representation, which I also think is important, but... I think the film is a foot in the door, so to speak. It's a a film about gratitude and we can talk about gratitude for hundreds and hundreds of hours and make hundreds and hundreds of movies. So I hope it's the beginning of that. I hope it's just the start of the journey.
0: Yeah, when you encounter something that's about positivity and gratitude it really jumps off the screen and and makes it such meaningful content to consume i think about a tv show like ted lasso which was sort of all about positivity and gratitude there's a reason why that show is as popular as it is it's because you actually walk out of it feeling good and feeling good means a lot when it comes to content michael out of 10 what's your final score what do you know, my favorite thing
6: to do in this segment is to weasel away out of giving it a final score. So I would just say that I'm grateful that this film exists. And um, that's it. That's all you get. That's the tweet. That's the segment. Because I think, I think one of the things with this documentary is that it does need reflection. It does need contemplation. So, for example, you have a lot of big statements. And you need to you need to consider those back statements, but those back statements are probably you know topics for meditation and contemplation. So I, I do feel that this is a great movie, but I just don't want to limit it to a number
0: at this time. Well, Michael, irrespective of you not offering a score, we're grateful for you putting this one on the radar, and we're grateful for your thoughts on it. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend, and best of luck with the move.
6: Thank you very much. I hope that over the next few segments you'll get to see a home
0: take place. That's one of the actual joys of moving, that at one moment you will be sitting there on your sofa, your futon one night, and you'll realize, wow, This is actually home. It may not happen this weekend. It may not happen next weekend, but it is destined to happen no matter what. That's Michael McNeely with a review of the documentary, Gratitude Revealed. To learn more about the film, you can visit gratituderevealed.com. That's gratituderevealed.com. And you can follow Michael on Twitter. And Michael's a pretty chatty Cathy there on Twitter. At Michael D. McNeely, at Michael D. McNeely. McNeely is spelt with two E's, an L and a Y. M-C-N-E-E-L-Y. I realized that Mac could also be spelt in two different ways, so I had to self-correct in real time. Coming up after the break, we catch up with Shiny Saravanamuthu. She'll tell you all about the Fighting Blindness Canada Young Leaders Summit that was held in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. She was there. She'll give you reports from on the ground. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. What could make a Friday brighter than a trip to Montreal to catch up with shiny Sarah Vanamuthu to find out about her latest adventures. Hey, good morning, shiny.
2: Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm well shiny for weeks. You were telling us about this fighting blindness, Canada young leaders (laughs) summit in Toronto. It happened. You were there. How'd it go?
2: Great. It was great to be back in Toronto after so long. And, like, not during COVID, so it was great. I got to spend some time in downtown Toronto. I spent some time in Yorkdale and ate my heart out. So it was great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, were there any highlights of the conference itself?
2: Honestly, uh, so we had a guest speaker, uh, David, who's, like, uh, an Olympic runner. He actually got to go to the Commonwealth Games last year. He is RP. And hearing his story and like just seeing younger generations like thriving in the community and doing such great things and honestly having resources that we didn't really necessarily have growing up. So it's great to see that they're thriving and they're helping others and inspiring others. So I think that was really beneficial uh, for everyone else that was there. And there was a younger turnout this year, which was good to see that younger generations were coming out and getting exposure to these things at a younger age so they can benefit these before going into college or university. So I think that was a really good uh, plus point this year.
0: Yeah. I love seeing that bringing people together, especially the young folks. Uh, it was something yeah. that didn't really exist in the same way when I was young and having and being legally blind. So really, really cool to see those connections and community being formed at a young mm-hmm. age, uh, as you say, especially before they're off to college or university or taking that next step. Exactly. Shiny. It feels like over the last couple of years, we've been on this journey together. As the pandemic has come <laughs> in waves, so has your return to the office. And I have found yeah. the pandemic has fostered some new habits and combined some old ones into the new mix. Yeah. But you've been going back to the office more and more and more more dates at the office. How's the return yeah. going for you?
2: Honestly, like last year, this time is when we got an email saying the first time back to the office and we're doing once a month. I think I went once in November, once in December, and then we went back into lockdown and I didn't go back to like, I think May, and that was once a week. Uh, so as of this week, we started going in three times a week. And let me tell you, I am struggling today.
0: Mm. Oh, what's What's making it so difficult?
2: I think it's because one the commute and having to wake up so much earlier, um, working from home, I can get up at 6.30 and be online for seven and start working. Um, commuting, I am now waking up at five to get on my train, uh, my bus at 6.15, to uh, which gets me to the office for 7.45. So that's a good hour and a half of commute.
0: Yeah, that's a long commute.
2: And long commute. working, and because I don't want to fall behind on work, I don't necessarily take my lunch I'm eating and working because I I recognize that I'm not getting my full work hours because I do want to leave around 4 to catch the 420 train so it's not too dark outside for me to come back home with my commute so that's what I'm struggling with and like the leisure of like if I'm tired to take a nap on my lunch
0: So, so what about well, some, like what about some habits here? Like I think about things like dry cleaning, meal prep. Like this is stuff that goes along with the office return. Wow. That's almost like unconscious until you have to do yeah. it.
2: Yeah, and that's another thing. Like I, this is my first week, and I I come to the conclusion that I really need to meal prep on the Sunday for Monday, Tuesday. Um, yeah, Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday when I'm working from home, um, I can meal prep for Wednesday and Thursday and because then I'm back home on Fridays. So I'm only working home at home on Wednesday and Fridays. Yeah. So I really have to maximize that meal prepping so that because of the commute, when I do come home on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday nights, I'm too tired to cook. I'm too yeah. tired to do anything.
0: Yeah.
2: So having that, like something that you can just pop in the oven or, you know, or microwave, whatever's easier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So, uh, I think it's just planning. I think we all have to get, and it's an adjustment, right? Like, this is my first week. I'm really hoping that in a month, like in a month when we talk about this, that I'm adjusted and I'm okay with it. My body's used to waking up at this time. I know the time change is going to screw with oh, our bodies gosh. again. Yeah. But, you know, that's life. Life, that's life. And I think now we know about adjusting. COVID taught us about adjustments and how things change in a blink of an eye. So, I just I know I sound like I'm complaining, but I do know that it's just an adjustment and learning to find a way that works for all of us, right? And I think meal prep and like having your clothes out the night before, so in the morning, you're not s- scrambling um, and just having all that stuff done and like you know, finding for us girls like hair washing schedules. We all got used to like working pretty <laughs> hair from home because no one noticed. But now when you go into an office and you're around humans, like you know, there is a presentation factor. So, and finding clothes that fit because you can't wear sweatpants anymore.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, the loss, the (laughs) loss of not wearing sweatpants and basketball shorts every day was tough for a lot of folks. Shiny, just as we're wrapping up here, I've got a weird one for you. Just because you mentioned that it's been a bit of a hybrid for you, right? There's some days in the office, there's some days at home. Do you think it might actually be easier if you were doing strictly like all five days a week at the office?
2: At the office? No, no way. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. No way. Because you know what? I still like having those two days at home where I can still do some stuff at home. And you know, honestly, I would prefer two days at the office and not three. But no, I'll take this. It's better than the five days at the office. So okay, all take right. What I can. <laughs> we'll call that we'll
0: call that a win. Well, Shiny, listen, have a great weekend. We're talking to you again next week for a community report. Yes. So there'll be lots yeah. of shiny in our life here in the next couple days.
2: <laughs> Bye, have a good weekend.
0: That's shiny Saravanamutu. Let's say hello to Rumia Emmethan, who's the co host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI audio. Rumia was in the building yesterday, didn't come say hello to me a single time. I was very upset, even though she knew I was sick, so that's probably why she didn't say hello. Good morning, Rumia. Oh, do we not have Rumia? Is there no Rumia today? We don't have Rumia. That's no big deal. Kelly and Company. Coming back your way 2 p.m. Eastern time this afternoon with Kelly and Rumya back in the big chairs after their big photo shoot here in the building yesterday. I did see Kelly. He was rocking the nicest jacket I've ever seen. It's like this NASCAR jacket. that has a big Miller Lite sign right across the front. And uh, I don't know if I was more drawn to the jacket or the thought of a crisp Miller Lite at 2 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon, but either way. Kelly and Rumya, back in the mix today. It's a Friday. That means Ryan Huey's there for the Chatty Bookshelf segment. So, audiobook time on a Friday. Speaking of literature, coming up after the break, Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access will talk about this year's winners for the First Nations Community Reads and Evergreen Award. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's find out what's going on in the world of literature and the world of accessible literature with Center for Equitable Library Access Communications Manager, Karen McKay. Hey, Karen. Great to chat with you once again. Happy Friday. Oh, my gosh. Happy Friday, indeed. (laughs) Hey, Karen, let's start off in the world of awards. You've always got the big winners for us. And last month, Mary Lawson was announced as the winner of the Forest of Reading Evergreen Award. Karen, I know we've talked about these awards before, but you always hit me with so many that sometimes I get them blurred in my head. (laughs) What does this award recognize?
4: So The Forest of Reading is a collection of awards, and we talk about it sometimes in the spring with the, the kids' awards and the young adults' awards, mm-hmm. but this is the, yeah, this is the adult version. So um, The Evergreens are different because it's it's reader-selected. So readers are invited to read a short list of books and vote on them, and then the winner is the sort of the popular choice. So this year, uh, Mary Lawson won for her novel. It's called A Town Called Solace.
0: Why do you think A Town Called Solace was the one that ended up taking home the award? What made it so great?
4: Well, it's this really sort of beautiful story about how three very characters from very different generations, how they come to know one another and support one another. It's a bit quirky. It's quite lovely. It was also recognized as um, a book on the 2021 Booker Prize long list. So it's got literary chops behind it. Um, But it's just a really beautiful novel about character development. It's got a little bit of a twist to it. Um, And I just, you know... uh, Reader's Choice Awards are always interesting to me because it's kind of one of those insights into people like the big awards, but what are they actually reading? What are they falling in love with? And Mm. this is one of those books they fell in love
0: with. Let's stay in the world of awards, where Carol Ann Hilton was announced as the winner of the First Nations Community Reads in the adult category. What does her book indigen oh my gosh, I'm gonna mispronounce this so poorly. <laughs> Indigenomics explore. I, I should I should tell you, Karen, I practiced this five times this morning and of course I messed it up on air. Indigenomics. What does it explore?
4: So, it's a really interesting book, and I think it's one that's sort of new to the space. It's not something that we've seen in the literary world. So, it speaks to the emerging Indigenous economy, which um, is built on the philosophies of Indigenous connection. It's built around relationships, multi generational stewardship of resources, and a sort of an overarching care for all. It's not just the economic piece, it's the whole piece. And so, she's brought this to a really interesting book. And the, the whole idea behind the First Nations Community Reads is similar to kind of a Canada Reads situation. Um, Librarians pick these books and and they then are selected from a longer list. And so I think it's one of those books that as I said before, I think it's missing from this space and that's probably one of the reasons that that it's been uh, nominated or, or has been given this award because it's a fresh take on something we really need to be talking about.
0: You've always got really interesting books that you highlight here and I keep this list going and a couple of weeks ago you sent me this email hey did you end up reading the book you told me you were going to read and I'm like no Karen, I don't have time but again in real time I'm marking this down I need to read Indigenomics, it sounds It's like a really, really fascinating read that could be really enlightening Mm -hmm. for a lot of folks. Speaking of your recommendations, Karen, you've always got some great ones for us. And this week, we're actually using long lists of awards to offer up some of the... Context to offer up these SELA featured titles. So, this week we're pulling from the Writers Trust Awards, which were held in person for the first time in three years, which people love. They love that they get to have these <laughs> cocktail parties back in person. So, let's start with Shani Mutu, who received a, a, an award for her most recent novel, Polar Vortex.
4: Yeah, so th- she actually got the Writers' Trust Angle uh, Finley Award. So that's awarded to mid-career writers, sort of for their overall body of work. And her most recent one was Polar Vortex, and it was also longlisted for the 2020 Giller Prize. Um, that- so that's her novel. She's got a new book of poetry out, and it's called Cane Fire. We have both of those in our um, our collection. And she's, um, um I'm going to call her a multimedia artist. She's a, a poet, and she's a writer, but she also does... A- um, like fine art, she, she's an artist in in visual arts, um, and she dabbles in film as well. So I, I love when artists sort of stretch themselves across different kinds of genres, and I think it brings a real richness to all of their work, their writing, and their art. And so she's received this uh, award, which is twenty five thousand dollars, just to encourage uh, future sort of literary stars. I think.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that. I like that idea of saying, hey, you're in the middle of your career. Here's a little boost. Get back in front of the typewriter and keep banging away. Don't worry about uh, doing any any serving this weekend. You can do a little bit of writing. Let's head over to Nicholas Herring, who won the Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize of $60,000 for his novel, Some Hellish.
4: Yeah, so this is a really interesting novel. I think we spoke about it before. Um, So it's based on a really kind of a a crazy premise. It's a bit fantastical, but or maybe metaphorical is a better description. So Harry is a hapless lobster fisher. He's living a relatively unremarkable life. He's in a rut. He's kind of bored of thinking the same old thoughts. And then one December day, he's following this sort of crazy hunch, and he cuts hole in his living room floor and he installs a hoist and that changed the course of everything in his life as it would right so uh his wife ends up leaving him with his with their children he has to bury his family dog in a frozen grave on christmas eve he and his friend Jerry crashed their truck into a field and they're rescued by a group of Tibetan monks, which is a little crazy. So, um, and then, then the spring lobster season happens, and Herring and Gary find themselves caught in a storm. Herring falls overboard and he's lost at sea for days. It's assumed that he's drowned, but then he's found miraculously alive, and he's you know he's had this near death experience. So he has to come to terms with all of the sort of big questions in life: love and friendship and belief, um, anguish. It's it's a very funny book in places. Sometimes it's quite serious. Sometimes it's really heartbreaking, but it's really brilliant and it sort of articulates. Um the impacts of consequences of the choices he's made on his life, so I think it was a surprise winner to be honest uh, but I think it's a it's a great read
0: karen i can I can tell what people might be really drawn to that one again about the way in- action, actions and consequences in life, and I th- people love books like that that have a bit of a domino effect yeah. to them let's yeah, jump it's... go ahead sorry no, that's okay go you go. No no you go.
4: I was just going to say, it sort of recalls a little bit of Old Man in the Sea mixed with The Life of Pi. Like, it's a bit of a crazy mix, but I think people will enjoy it.
0: Very good. Karen, let's jump over to to one that maybe might hit a little too close to home for folks who've been living their lives the last couple of (laughs) years. Uh, Dan Werb won the $60,000 Hillary Weston Writer's Trust Prize for nonfiction for his book The Invisible Siege, The Rise of Coronaviruses, and The Search for a Cure.
4: Yeah, when I heard this one... One, I thought, oh, dear, Um, you know, people might be uh, sort of have had their fill of COVID. But I think this is a really important book. So Dan Ward traces the rise of the coronavirus family through the last number of decades. He starts the book with Ralph Barrick, who began researching the viruses in the 1980s, when they were basically just, you know, the worst they did was cause a, a common cold. But then we had the SARS epidemic, and researchers realized that there were Startling similarities between the SARS epidemic and historical moments in the past when coronaviruses made a deadly jump from animals to humans. And then about 10 years later, we had the MERS virus. And then they realised they were really running out of time, that that this was that we were heading towards a pandemic. So he walks us through the the research that they're doing, all of their investigative work, it really sort of illuminates how Barrick's team hatched a plan, not merely to battle Covid but also to try and end pandemics forever. And through the story, we come to learn about the barriers and the roadblocks that the researchers encountered, the the scientific ones, obviously, but also ones that were presented by ethical concerns, by industry and business constraints, and also by politics. And that these different barriers threatened to derail the efforts um, to, to solve this puzzle, just as COVID was really looming larger than ever. The book reads a little bit like a novel. We get to know these researchers and their history. It's dotted with familiar faces like uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Tam. And it's more than just a science exploration of the pandemic. It really weaves together all these interesting philosophical questions that I think need careful and informed consideration now that we're hopefully through the worst of this. Um, it also asks us to consider what might be next. So in the context of the, the science, which really it was a success story, right? We, we ended up with a uh, a vaccine fairly quickly and you know it mitigated some of the potential worst case scenarios. There's also this really infuriating situation where science might not be able to get us to the next step because of these barriers. So if you're if you've been walking around the last couple of years thinking, what is happening? This might be the book for you because I think it explains what's happening.
0: There are so many times, Karen, when I'm banging the table on the air behind the scenes talking about based in the real world, <laughs> this is the definition of something that's based in the real world and the people can walk away with a tangible learning. This is what great writing is all about. And that's not yeah. to be dismissive of the last featured selection that you have here because this is also really important stuff. Halifax author Francesca. Ekwa Asi was awarded the $10,000 Dane Ogilvy Prize for LGBTQ2S plus emerging writers for their debut novel, Butter, Honey, Pig, Bread.
4: Yeah, so I know we've talked about this one before because it is um, a very popular novel. It was on the 2020 Scotia Bank Gillery Prize list, it was on the 2021 Canada Reads uh, program. It's been a finalist for the uh, Governor General's Awards. Uh, anyway, it's 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 a well-recognized book, and it's beautiful. So it tells the story of three Nigerian women. So there's Nashi and she has twin daughters, Kendi and Tay. And um, Nashi believes that she is an obange, I hope I said that right, which is a non-human spirit that plagues the family with misfortune, uh, and uh, by being born and then dying as a child and, uh, as a child, and causing harm and, and um, hurt to mothers and families. So she makes this really rather unnatural choice to stay alive, to love her human family, but she lives in fear of the consequences of that decision. Her two daughters become estranged from her and from each other, and then ultimately they find their ways back to one another. And they have to confront and the, all of the issues of their of their relationships and reconcile with one another. It's it's a really beautiful book. It's very, I would say, it's very essential. It's musical. It's lyrical. One of the reviews I read said that it's like a love letter to the time before COVID, when we could could travel, when we could sit in cafes and talk to one another, when we could have intimate connections that, you know, that we have sort of had to be guarded from for the last little while. And I wonder if that's maybe one of the reasons why it won is because it's so beautiful and sensual. And those, some of those pieces have been missing in our lives for the last year. I think it's a beautiful book and uh, I hope folks would pick it up.
0: Well, Karen, I've been to two weddings in the last three weeks, so I can tell you these things are back, and they're a lot of fun, and it's great to have (laughs) them back. Karen, all the best to you. Thank you for featuring these titles for us today, and thank you to you and your colleagues for all the work that you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That's Karen McKay, Communications Manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time we have for the show today. It's all the time we have for the show this week. But we'll be back again on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I do want to offer some special thanks this week to Mike Ross, who's been doing a ton for us behind the scenes with Alex Smythe on vacation, but speaking of, Alex, even while he was on vacation, did a ton of of producing work for us. Also, you've heard from Brock Richardson every day. You've heard from Enrique Delanerle, who's back in the mix this week, who we say thank you to as well. Our TV technical producer is Bruce Baclarian. We have our behind-the-scenes producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. We have to say A super extra thank you to our day-to-day production crew, Daniel Penamondo, Eliza Rocco, and Kingsley Juco. And of course, all the tech services team working behind the scenes and all the editorial help we get from other folks in these halls as well. Until Monday at 9 a.m., I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.